Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. This is America's 360, and I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, the impact of the pandemic has been felt in ways large and small. It's caused new problems and exacerbated old ones. And while it's understandable that much of the world's focus has been on vaccines, making them and distributing them, Today, America's 360 is shining a spotlight on a persistent problem that's gotten much worse in the age of COVID, and that's food security. The UN recently held its Food Systems Summit, and the organization estimates that as many as 811 million people faced food shortages in the year 2020, an increase of 161 million from the previous year. And with supply chains slowing and in some cases grinding to a halt, the situation is not likely to improve dramatically in 2021. And if that's not enough to make things even worse, the effects of climate change continue to have adverse effects on food production and consequently food security. Clearly, we have much to talk about, so let's bring in our roundtable. Please say hello to Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hey, John. Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Greetings, John. Slater Family Fellow and Senior Associate for the Brazil Institute, Anya Prusa. Hi, John. Mexico Institute Director Andrew Redman. Hey, John. And Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour, John. Hello, welcome back to all of you. Great to see you as always. So because our topic is so large, let's attempt at least initially to divide and conquer, and we'll, we'll look at some specific countries and regions. And Anya, I'm sad to announce to our listeners that this will be your final appearance on America's 360. A little more on that later, but we're going to then allow you to bat lead off for your final time on the program. So if you could talk to us a bit about the situation in Brazil, what's happening to food prices and access to food? Well, Brazilians now, you know, at the end of 2021, October, are facing, you know, a number of interrelated challenges that together are contributing to rising food insecurity in Brazil. Obviously, the pandemic has had a huge impact on income levels, Poverty has risen over the last two years, and that means that it's going to be harder for Brazilians to afford the food that they need. This is combined with rising inflation uh, due in part to the pandemic and supply chain difficulties, but also because of issues like climate change. We've seen, you know, a long term drought, heat waves. There's been a frost that damaged uh, crops in the southern portion of Brazil. So there is simply less food coming to market that contributes to rising prices, which makes it even harder for people on their limited incomes to be able to afford to buy what they need. And just to give you an example, John, of of what's happening, you know, the cost of rice is two times higher now than it was a year and a half ago. And that's going to impact people. 85% of Brazilians have reduced the amount of meat that they're buying, which is a clear indication, right, that people's food budgets are not stretching as far as they used to. And there's also, you know, a related factor, which is is relevant to Brazil's kind of macroeconomic situation, 
which is that the Brazilian real has devalued against the dollar. And so if you're looking at foods and other commodities that are being imported, those are also more expensive. So it really is the perfect storm. And it's made it increasingly difficult for Brazilians to buy the food that they need. And in fact, you know, a study found that in 2020, about 55% of Brazilians were food insecure at some point during that year. Thanks, Anya. Cindy, I want to ask you about Venezuela, if I could, even before the pandemic problems, right? It's not that the pandemic created something out of nothing, but it certainly doesn't help anything. But can you give us a sense of what some of those pre-pandemic conditions were that have worsened as a result of that and perhaps even climate change, because killer storms have been part of the mix as well? Sure. Well, to talk specifically about Venezuela, the number of households that have been in poverty and have been food insecure has been above 90% for the last several years. There is an annual household survey that's conducted by the um, Andres Bello Catholic University, a study called ENCOVI, which showed that the number of households in poverty is around 95% in, in Venezuela. And Venezuela is certainly the most dramatic case but this has also affected Central America. There, you know, post hurricanes in, in 2020, the World Food Program was talking about the hundreds of thousands of hectares of crops that had been lost, the increases in food security in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, countries that are major senders of migrants to the United States. So this combination of COVID's impact on increasing poverty throughout the region, the severe contractions that the entire region has experienced, the you know heroic efforts really by a lot of governments to get money in the hands of, of, of poor people, but it's just not enough and it's just not long enough, as we've seen in the United States and other developed economies as well. Benjamin, I want to ask you about the Northern Triangle and what the effects have been both of the pandemic and of climate change and what is happening to food systems and what efforts are underway by the governments to even begin to address the problems. Thanks, John. I think Cindy mentioned some of the really grim statistics in that part of the world. I think the UN has warned that, that maybe as many as 12 million people are now food insecure just in the countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, and Nicaragua. You know, she mentioned some of the factors, um, climate change related droughts, severe storms, worsening hurricanes, and some of the impacts. I think Cindy's right to point to migration as being very much tied into food insecurity. Something I just wanted to mention, though, is that Latin America also is a potential solution to this problem. I mean, the countries in South America, like Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, they're major food producers. Mm -hmm. And so if they have the right set of incentives and the right investments, you know, they produce soy and beef and wheat and, you know, crops that, you know, could ramp up and actually reduce some of the food inflation that we have seen reducing livelihoods, you know, throughout the world. What are the barriers to more production in those areas you mentioned? So investment, as always, but also bad policymaking. I mean, if you look at Argentina, they've reduced by half for many months the exports of beef to try to reduce prices at home. There are now price controls on another thousand goods, including lots of foodstuffs, to reduce inflation. Now, inflation is running above 50 percent. The midterm elections are coming up. It's all understandable from a policymaker perspective in the short term. In the long term, producers see these price controls. They say we won't produce. They see export restrictions. They say we won't plant crops or we won't raise cattle. And so the solutions that Argentina, as happens elsewhere at times of food scarcity and high inflation, can really worsen the problems in the long term. Thanks, Benjamin. Andrew, when we, when we turn our sights to Mexico, you know, we're, we're not necessarily always just talking about uh, shortages of food, but sometimes it's quality of food and nutrition. 
what's the circumstance regarding food security in Mexico? John, that, that's a great question because it, it is sort of ironic. I mean, food insecurity has increased due to the pandemic in Mexico as well, um, now at about 55% of the population. But at the same time, Mexico has one of the highest rates of overweight and obesity in the world, about 75%, which is uh, actually even higher than the U.S. That's a number that has crept up and as I always used to say, speaking at least for myself, Americans aren't getting skinnier. So the fact that more Mexicans than Americans are obese or overweight says a lot. And, and what drives that, some of it is, is internal migration, more people moving to cities and having jobs where they wind up buying a lot more fast food, which is cheap and satisfying, but not very healthy. One maybe sort of obscure statistic is that Mexicans, it's a very high consumption of instant soup which is really high in sodium and chemicals. Mexico's Consumer Protection Agency just banned instant soups because they found they had almost no vegetables. They had lots of sodium and even pointed out that the containers themselves, the plastic containers, if you microwave them, leach dangerous chemicals. So sort of a different a different type of food insecurity, certainly than the people who literally have nothing to eat, but one that obviously has has long-term consequences. And I'll just mention, since it's Anya's last day, Mexico's number two on instant food consumption and Brazil's not in, in Latin America, but Brazil's number one. Wow. As you know, as the as we delve into this more and more, the, the problem becomes deeper and deeper and broader and broader. And that, that perfect storm you described, Anya, has more elements than I even imagined at first. Chris, when we when we look at Canada, you know, and there are parallels between Canada and the US, two wealthy nations that are used to having supermarkets that are well-stocked and access to all kinds of food. And yet we see inequities, right? Where when usually socioeconomic that disproportionately affect minority populations in Canada, black people, indigenous communities, what's the circumstance there? And is there anything that's being done to try to close that gap and create more security uh, on, on a broader basis? Well, fortunate for Canada, their agricultural sector has always been overproductive, producing for export mainly. And that has meant that even with disruptions, they've been able to meet uh, local demand. A second factor that's interesting is that Canada's food production, particularly agricultural, but also meats and other things, has been integrated with the United States. And at the beginning of the pandemic, the U.S. and Canada restricted access across the border, but exempted essential traffic. And all of the food products, raw ingredients, et cetera, that were moving back and forth across the border continued. You had a third factor that also helped, and that was Canada was much stricter on its closing of businesses. And so the restaurant commercial kitchen kind of demand for food went down. And then you saw private you know, grocery stores, household uh, consumption was able to take advantage of some of that shift. Uh, and that helped keep prices low. And then one more factor. Canada introduced income support broadly for people, whether they were unable to work because of the pandemic or not. Many households use that to pay down debt, but for households that were in the bubble, the ones that you raised, this gave them an ability to continue their consumption and, and not really face a, a food crisis. So all in all, Canada came out pretty well, but there's always a, I guess, a negative lining, not a silver lining, but a tin lining in there. And that is that prices are going up. This is part of a general inflationary trend we're seeing in both Canada and the United States. The Canadian food industry estimates that 
particularly driven by meat and vegetables, Canada's food prices will go up by $695 Canadian in 2021 as compared to 2022. So as we go into 20, oh, sorry, as compared to 2020. So as we go into 2022, the issue will be, you know, higher prices mean a reduction in what people can afford to spend. And those income subsidies are also tapering off as we enter what could be the third year of this pandemic. And how much they can afford and then the quality of what they can afford, because often, unfortunately, healthier food can be more expensive. Uh, Andrew. Sure. I just wanted to pick a point that Chris made, which is uh, relates to NAFTA, now the USMCA, and the huge growth in Mexican agricultural exports to both the U.S. and Canada, which has meant that we do have access to fresh fruit and vegetables year-round, which we used to not have. So there is, again, at least something positive in the midst of, of a pretty depressing story. Benjamin Gadan. Yeah, I mentioned earlier the possibility that, you know, some of these big agricultural powerhouses in South America could be part of the solution. You know, not everyone is talking about that in part because there's a lot of negative consequences from agriculture as it's practiced in that part of the world. So I think it's important to bring that up. I do think that there could be a very big and sustainable increase in production of lots of foodstuffs in the region, but not if it leads to deforestation the way it does often in Brazil and elsewhere. And that involves these big soy plantations in places like Paraguay and also a lot of the beef production production in, in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Well, I, want, I want to ask, is anyone could, could tell us where are the five alarm fires? You know, in other words, where are we talking about we're approaching famine conditions where we're, ta- uh, we're talking about an, an, an outright humanitarian crisis? Or are we talking about more chronic situations that are just slow burning? What can you tell us about that? You know, I think in Brazil, it, it's more of a chronic situation at this point, right? I mean, Brazil has, you know, deployed stimulus program, conditional cash transfer programs. There's a, a renewed program that was just recently announced to, to try to ensure that lower income families do have the money they need, right, to purchase food. But in the long run, you know, continuing these programs is not sustainable. And so I think that's the challenge that Brazil has to figure out. You know, to Benjamin's point really quick on on the sustainability question when it comes to agriculture, I think that's important. I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, when we're talking about food production, soy, corn, even beef, a lot of it is destined for exports. It's not necessarily going to feed, right, Brazilians or Mexicans. I know in Brazil, one of the the big challenges is is getting food into local communities. Cindy Johnson. Sure. You know, I think going back to Venezuela, John, you asked about famine or or a really critical situation. I mean, we're not talking about the kinds of things that have developed in Yemen or or potentially in Afghanistan. But in in Venezuela, a couple of years ago, and things have only gotten worse since since 2019, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN considered Venezuela one of the 10 worst food insecurity crises in the world. That's that's saying a lot. And it put the figure or the, the number of people or the percentage of the population as about a third of Venezuelans that needed emergency food supplemental assistance. And and the situation just has continued to decline, along with the uh with the overall economy, which has sunk about eighty percent overall since twenty thirteen when, when Nicolas Maduro took power. The other thing that you mentioned, I think, is important is that this is not just a COVID-19 induced shock. There are long term trends in Central America, particularly in a country like Guatemala. Malnutrition of children is chronic. 
There are gross inequalities that have to do with the indigenous population, also in other countries around the hemisphere with, with other racial and ethnic minorities. And climate change has had a severe impact via drought and new diseases on making local food production sustainable and uh, sufficient. Chris Sands. I think it uh, it bears repeating, even though we've said it before on the show, the, the challenge of the pandemic for people is if you have a pre-existing condition that, that makes you a vulnerable person, you're going to suffer. But that's been true for countries as well. If they have fundamental problems that are unresolved, they just become so much worse when they're under the pressure of a pandemic. You know, Benjamin, always a, a can-do guy, is reminding us that there are potential solutions in front of us, right? But I'm wondering, what will it take to trigger those? Is it foreign investment? Is it reforms within countries? Is it some combination of all of the above? What what does that formula look like to both increase the amount of food, the cost of food, and the and the quality of food available? I would think in, in Central America, the conditions are so urgent that you actually need to physically be feeding people. I think there, it's not talking about some bridge to different crops. There are longer term solutions where you need to be monitoring these crop diseases that Cindy referenced. But for now, you know, the devastation of these twin hurricanes at the end of 2020, the pandemic's economic impacts, um, you know, the long term effects in the dry corridor on crops like maize, you know, it's just people can't eat and they're going to leave if they can't be fed. I do think- So this is triage, right? This is stop the bleeding. Yeah, I mean, in places like that, you really need to feed people so that they can, you know, live in their homes and their communities and not immediately leave in search of food. That's not a tough decision, despite all of the traumas and difficulties of migration, um, if you literally don't have enough to eat. I do think, John, on the other hand, that there are broader solutions, particularly in the net, you know, commodity exporting countries. These big agricultural powerhouses can double, triple production. It is possible, but again, it needs to be done sustainably, and it needs to be done with lots of virgin investment. So where do we look for for hope? Are there organizations, whether it's the Organization of American States, are there any bodies that can play a role in organizing an effort? Because, you know, as we learn with the pandemic and other things, none of this stuff, or it's a rare country that can contain it all within its borders, right? There's going to be interdependence, call it globalization, call it what you will. So is there a place we can look for leadership and for organizing uh, of addressing food security in the broadest context? You know, I think there's increasing awareness among policymakers in the economic and financial sectors that, you know, food insecurity and some of these other socioeconomic challenges, right, that are impacting the most vulnerable among us also, you know, are going to have a real impact on the direction of markets and the direction of countries. And so in some ways, I think non-traditional actors, when it comes to the humanitarian space, you know, are stepping up and playing a greater role. And that does give me cause for hope. Any other thoughts? John, I would say that one of the real dilemmas in Latin America has to do with food production for local consumption versus imports. And in any country that has a free trade agreement with the United States, A lot of domestic production, which is less efficient, you know, is displaced by, you know, U.S. exports. Mm -hmm. I'm not arguing that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we need to understand sort of the dynamics of the market and whether the expansion of certain export crops like uh, palm oil is having an impact on local food security. There's no single answer to this issue. It involves a lot of struggles over who benefits, who should be protected. And these are very contested issues within countries and and in the international community. 
I think that, you know, I happen to believe that the development of geoengineered crops is a positive, especially as, you know, climate change advances and drought advances. We need to develop varieties that are resilient to the kinds of environmental shocks that that they're being subjected to. I know that that's controversial in in a lot of uh, circles, but I tend to believe that that geoengineering is very promising in terms of having hope for feeding the population of the world. Benjamin. Yeah, I think Cindy's right. Sometimes the availability of food locally certainly is impacted by a concentration on exports in the agricultural sector. I do want to emphasize, though, that the opposite is also true, which is that trade protectionism in places like the United States and Europe, when it comes to agricultural products, holds back these key industries in places like South America. And if there were the ability to access markets, for example, in Europe, you might have growth in what's produced and you might be able to address food insecurity and food price inflation. I should say probably the opposite will happen now. Whenever there is this increase in prices and and a scarcity of food or fears of a scarcity, you get greater protectionism and this desire to keep all food production inside national borders. And again, that serves short term political interests and, you know, human interests as well. But it undermines the longer term project globally. Thanks, Andrew. So just sort of coming back to the the USMCA theme a little bit, we've got a a couple of projects running on on ag labor uh, in Mexico and as it relates to the U.S. And and one of the findings, interestingly, is that in terms of labor protection, ag export agriculture treats its workers far better than agricultural production for domestic consumption in Mexico. So just kind of, I think, an interesting point that, that, that I think Cindy and Benjamin were alluding to that. Who's producing it and where it's going does have all kinds of other impacts. Great. Thank you, Andrew. And, you know, again, like most of the topics we discuss, these are so complex that we're not going to be able to wrap it in a tidy package in the 20 minutes or so that we have. So thank you for an insightful and informative discussion. Before we close, I mentioned at the top of the program, this is Anya Prusa's final go round with us on America's 360. As As one of the panelists, Anya, you may be back as a guest, who knows, but... We just want to take this moment to wish you well. And you want to tell us anything about your plans? Thanks, John. Um, it's been such a pleasure to be part of this this roundtable. Goodness, I don't even know how many months it's been. It has just flown by. But yes, I'm very excited. I'll be staying focused on Brazil um, and Latin America more broadly and moving to the Albright Stonebridge group, but hopefully back to speak with all of you at some point. Excellent. Well, congratulations on that. I think we'll welcome her back. Is that right, team? America's 360? Absolutely. There you go. Okay. Well, again, thank you, Cindy, Benjamin, Chris, Andrew, and Anya. One final time as a panelist, thank you as well. Uh, We look forward to hearing from all of you again in future episodes. And Anya, of course, we wish you continued success. Uh, This episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fascinella, and Zoe Reed. It was edited by Sam Vicroy with the assistance of Barbara Giamatti, Sam Kane Jimenez, and Noah Silverman. We want to thank our listeners as well. You make this possible. Thank you for listening to our program. We hope to see you back here next time. And again, send us an email or a text or anything you'd like if you have topics you'd like to hear us discuss in future episodes. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molesky. Thank you for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. 
and please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.